Well, in just two chapters, we've already covered the first 80 years in the life of Moses, so at this pace, we ought to be done in just a couple of weeks. But that's not going to be the case, because we'll spend the rest of the fall looking at these last 40 years in the life of Moses. But it's important to, to remember what we've learned so far. We've learned that despite the fact that Moses was raised in a house of royalty, that he was a Hebrew at heart. Even though he was a prince in Egypt, he was most concerned about his brethren in bondage. We learned that he was a man of power in both word and deed, so much so that even he felt like he would be used by God to deliver his people. And although that was a correct conviction, he went about it in the wrong way. He took matters into his own hands, becoming a, a self-appointed savior, defending the oppressed, but taking the life of another man to do so. And when he did that, he forfeited his right to bring peace. He no longer had the moral authority to bring justice. He had blood on his hands. He tried to do for God what only God could do for him. Now, it would be very easy for the story to end there, right? Moses had his opportunity. He overstepped the bounds of God's will, taking matters into his own hands, killed another man, fled into the wilderness. End of story. Nothing more to be said. And something tells me that as you look at the life of Moses and as you think through what we'll walk through together this morning, it very, it's very possible that Moses probably believed that was true, that he had been disqualified by his sin. He was living in obscurity. Even he said, I am a foreigner in a foreign land. Translation, I'm nobody. I mean, I'm a, I'm a father, I'm a husband, a shepherd, but that's it. I am nobody special. So how would God ever do great things through someone like me? Well, this morning we're going to get a chance to, to see the answer to that question. How God works great things through someone who's nobody special. A broken man. A humble man. We'll learn that God doesn't give up on us. <laughs> Even in our failures and admits our flaws, he is faithful. We'll see how God will take the heart of a humble man and do great things in and then ultimately through his life. You see, there's always room when we put our trust in God for him to do great things in and through our life. But we've got to learn like Moses to put our trust in Him. So before we look at that together, let me open our time in prayer. God, as we open Your Word, we ask that You open our hearts, that You open our eyes, that You open our ears, that we could hear the truth that would penetrate deeply into our hearts, and that when we walk out of the doors of this place this morning, we're not the same. That we're changed by the power of your Holy Spirit, very present and at work within us even right now. So we offer this time to you. Have your way. Amen. 
Turn to Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to pick up where we left off last. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. And if you would follow along with me. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Mount Horeb is also known as Mount Sinai. What I want you to realize in this one verse is that this was an ordinary day. There is nothing special going on. This is the, Mos- the life of Moses that he has now known for the last 40 years. I want to give you a picture of what that area looks like. As you can tell, it's pretty dry. Not a lot of water, not a lot of vegetation, which means they're always on the move. This is the top of Mount Sinai. I love this picture because it's almost as if God said, okay, Moses, I'm going to meet with you here someday. Let me clear off the top, make a little table so we could sit down and visit together. That's what that reminds me of. But this is where Moses now lived. This was the area that he was accustomed to. He was a shepherd in the wilderness, and this was just an ordinary day. But that's about to change. Look at verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, and yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not being burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So, not so ordinary anymore, right? Moses is just doing his job, and all of a sudden he sees a bush that's on fire, which may not have been that uncommon in such a dry and arid place, but it caught his attention enough to realize, wait a second, there's something different about this bush that's burning. It's not being consumed by the fire. So, curious, he moves in closer. And the Scripture tells us when God sees that he has his attention, he calls out his name, Moses. Moses. Now, at this point, I don't know that Moses has clued into the fact that there's something special going on because he just seems to answer like, yes, that's me. (laughs) He starts to move in closer, and God says, wait. Don't move any closer. You're on holy ground. Remove your shoes. (laughs) By removing his sandals is a way of... uh, putting himself in a place of a posture of worship, a a posture of honor and respect. Probably you've been in homes before where it's customary in many cultures before you enter the home to remove your shoes. It's a sign of honor and respect. It's the very same idea of what God is trying to communicate to Moses. Moses, remove your shoes. You're on holy ground. Then God identifies himself. He says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. You'll notice here that that God is identifying himself in the context of history. 
He didn't just show up for the first time in this bush on this day. He's the same God that's always been at work in the lives of his people. Despite their failures, despite their flaws, God is always faithful. But as we know, Moses has a history too, right? Which is exactly why he hid his face in fear. And if you look at Scripture, you'll see that anybody who has the same encounter as Moses has had responds the very same way. What about Isaiah? What did he say when he encountered the presence of God? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. God's perfection exposes our imperfection. But here's what's important. It also reveals his grace. Look at verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. And now, behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. If you'll notice there at the very beginning in verse 7, it's really a repeat of what God has already said at the end of chapter 2. It's what we talked about this morning when we celebrated communion. Basically, God is recounting the fact that, hey, I, I see, I hear, I remember, I know, and therefore, I will move. I want you to notice the clarification. In verse 8 it says, So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a land that is good and spacious, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Therefore, come now, I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. So, let me ask you, who is going to deliver the Israelites? Moses? Or God. He's made it clear, hasn't he? I have come down to deliver my people. I will do this. Moses, I want you to lead them out of Egypt. And, and notice that he not only says that I will save them from something, of which we all know that's their prayer, they're in slavery, they're in bondage, they're being oppressed. I will deliver them from that. But he goes on to say, I will deliver them to something as well, to a land, a plentiful land that's full of, of milk and honey, a flourishing land where all their needs will be met. See, God hasn't forgotten his people. He is faithful. He doesn't give up on us. His grace never runs out. He will deliver and Moses has another opportunity to follow God's lead. But Moses, because of his history, is not so eager to comply. He has a few questions. 
And I believe those questions are ultimately being motivated by not the fact that he doesn't believe God is able. He just simply doesn't believe that he is worthy. He feels inadequate for the calling. He feels disqualified because of his sin. Either way, God's going to confront these questions of inadequacy. Look at verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you. This shall be the sign to you, that is, that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. In his first objection, Moses is basically saying, I don't possess the power. I can't deliver God's people. And God basically says, I never said you would. He tells Moses, I will be with you. And I will deliver my people. And he says, and here's a sign that I will give to you. But it's a very interesting sign. Listen to it again. Listen to what it says. This shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. It's an interesting sign, don't you think? He's basically saying, when you've done what I've asked you to do, you will then know that it was I who sent you. Obedience precedes confirmation. In other words, walk in faith, and you will see that I will prove myself to be faithful. God seems to be telling Moses, look, this is not about you. Success is not based on your abilities. It's based on my promise. I will deliver my people. You, Moses, have to learn to trust me. Moses is still not convinced. After asking the question of who am I, he basically says, but who are you? What am I going to tell them about the one who sent me? Look at what it says in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he says, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. You see, Moses feels inadequate. Who am I to deliver the people? Well, that's not your job. I never said you would to begin with. I will deliver the people. Well, who am I going to tell them that you are? Tell them I am who I am. In other words, I am the God who is. Not the God who was, who did something at some point in the past and is just waiting for people to notice. Not the God who will be, who's waiting at some point in the future for people to pay attention so that he can then speak. He is the God who is, the God who was, and the God who always will be. That's what he's trying to tell Moses. He's unchangeable, self-sufficient, the same yesterday, today, 
and forever. You see, God's presence is the secret to Moses' success. God will move in the hearts of his people so that they may listen. God will go as far as to harden the heart of Pharaoh so that, once again, his people will see his hand at work in the most powerful and magnificent ways so that there is no doubt about who ultimately reigns supreme. Moses is the messenger, but they will ultimately be delivered by the hand of God. Now, keep in mind, Moses has spent the last 40 years in the wilderness, but I bet he still remembers that day he took matters into his own hands and tried to deliver the people in his own strength, and that didn't work out so well, did it? So there's still questions and and doubts and concerns. Look at what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered and said, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. And the Lord just said to him, What is in your hand? He said, A staff. It's a common thing that a shepherd would have. He said, Then he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they might believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. See, Moses feels inadequate because he no longer has influence. He has no title. He's not the prince of Egypt. No resume to fall back on. The last thing they remember is that Moses murdered a man and then fled for his life like a coward. That's the guy that's supposed to lead them out of the land of Egypt? He's got no influence. So once again, God is patient with Moses. He tells him to throw his staff on the ground, and when he does, he turns into a snake. He picks up that snake by the tail, it turns back into a staff. If you read on a little further, he's not finished yet. He tells Moses, stick your hand inside your coat. Completely normal, ordinary hand, pulls it out, not so ordinary anymore, covered in leprosy. Sticks it back in his coat, pulls it out again, once again normal, disease free. (laughs) It's as if God is saying, Moses, look what I can do with the ordinary, with the common. An ordinary staff becomes a snake. An ordinary hand becomes diseased and then is immediately healed. Look what I can do with the ordinary. You see, they're not going to believe you because of who you are. They will believe you because of who I am. You're right, Moses. You don't possess the power to deliver my people. You're right, Moses. You don't have the influence for them to follow you. Apart from me, you've got neither one of those. But when I'm with you, you have both. You have both. Trust me. Believe it or not, Moses is still not convinced. He's got one more question up his sleeve. Look at verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. For I am slow of speech and and, and slow of tongue. 
And I want to stop there because when I read this passage this week, after having gone through what we went through the last two weeks, I recognized something that I've never seen before. Moses just said that he's never been eloquent, neither now or at any time in the past. But what did we learn about Moses from the testimony of Scripture during his life in Egypt? He was a man of great power in both word and deed. So what Moses said about himself, simply not true. So what's going on here? Well, Moses has been a shepherd for the past 40 years. Prior to that, he was being trained by the finest Egyptian schools. He was a man of power in both word and deed because he gained his confidence from his training. And now, while he's in the classroom of the wilderness, his Egyptian counterparts are continuing to advance. And so by comparison, Moses doesn't measure up. In, in the midst of the fear of confronting those that will be so far beyond him, he loses sight of what God has done in his past. Look at verse 11. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or what makes him dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then, go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you are to say. God tells Moses that what a person hears and understands is not dependent on his eloquence. When I read that, it made me think of Paul. Remember his confession when he said, look, I am not the most eloquent person. You don't need to turn there, but let me read to you. We walk through this in Corinthians. It says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says, for I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. You see, Moses is essentially telling, or God is essentially telling Moses the very same thing. You don't possess the power. You don't have the influence. And yes, by comparison, according to the world standards, you're correct. You don't measure up. But Moses, you don't have to. In fact, that was never a part of the job description. I'm not looking for someone who has great gifts. I'm simply looking some, for someone who has great faith. But in that, we've discovered the very core of the issue for Moses. He really wasn't most concerned about his lack of power or his lack of influence, or his stuttering speech. God had adequately answered all those questions. But look what Moses says in verse 13. But he said, please, Lord, please send someone else. The biggest obstacle in the life of Moses was a lack of faith. 
He simply could not bring himself to a place to just trust and obey. But once again, God is gracious. Was he frustrated with Moses? I bet so. Was he willing to write him off? Absolutely not. In fact, he extends even greater grace, and he says, okay, Moses, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send your brother Aaron. And I'm sure for Moses that was like, oh, good, I have a partner, somebody that will go with me. And he said, Moses, what's going to happen is Aaron is going to speak, because that's what you're concerned about, and you will perform the signs. But please remember, I am the one who will deliver my people. God is so, so patient. As Isaiah says, he says, A bruised reed he will not break off. A withering wick he will not put out. God is gentle, even in the midst of our doubts and our fears. Now, I know your outline suggests I have another point, but I'm going to forego that. Because I think what we've just walked through together is way too important to move past. I think as we finish up, we need to let what just happened in the life of Moses really penetrate our heart as well. Because if you think about it, could there be a more encouraging example of God's patient love? And I don't know about you, but as you listen to the life of Moses, do you relate to anything that has happened in his life? Do you ever feel like you don't have what it takes? (laughs) Have you ever played the comparison game? where you look at what's represented on your friend's Facebook or Instagram or the schooling that they've had or the time that they've been a believer, and by comparison, you simply don't measure up? Have you ever felt inadequate because of that? Do you ever doubt that God is going to come through? I mean, he's talking about some pretty impressive things here. Is that really going to happen? Have you ever been in a place... (laughs) where you're paralyzed by fear, so much so that you can't even take one simple step of faith. Does any of that resonate with you? I know that every one of them resonates with me. And that's why we need to stop and look and don't miss the picture of God's grace so beautifully put on display. You see, God is all-knowing. That's true. But he's also patient. He is all-powerful. That's true. But he's also gracious. His mercies are new every morning. His compassions never fail. He hears, he remembers, he sees, and he knows. You see, he has all the answers because he is the answer. God has all the answers because he is the answer. All those questions that we long for answers to in our life are ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, God made a promise to Moses for the Israelites that he would personally come down and deliver them. You and I need to understand that God made the very same promise to us and it was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We've been delivered because of his sacrifice on our behalf. 
You know that passage that I read to you about that reed that is bruised, he will not break it. He's very gentle. Just picture that in your mind, what that would look like. Or the smoldering wick, he protects it so that it, it doesn't blow out. Those words were actually written by Isaiah to describe the person of Jesus Christ. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to finish up looking at Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, verse 14. I want you to just read along with me. In verse 14 of Matthew chapter 12, it says, uh, But the Pharisees went out and counseled together against him, Jesus, as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them. He healed them all. And warned them not to make him known in order that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off. A smoldering wick he will not put out. Until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. We know that Jesus spoke with his authority. You remember the Bible says that people heard him teach and they said he teaches different than others. He teaches as one who has authority. Not as the scribes who just want you to be impressed with how much they know. We know about the power that Jesus possessed. His disciples asked the question, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey? We know that he healed disease. We know that he cast out demons. But Peter's right when he said, it is the patience of the Lord that leads to salvation. It is the patience of the Lord that leads to salvation. And what a beautiful picture we have seen of that. In the life of Moses. And we need to understand that applies to you and I as well. So go ahead. Make a list of all the reasons you feel inadequate. Make it as long as you want. Put everything on there. In fact, while you're at it, go ahead and make a list of all the questions that you might have. But in the end, know this. Jesus is the answer to all those questions. And in all those places where you feel inadequate... He alone is sufficient. He made Paul understand when he said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in your weakness. You see, sometimes we get stuck because I think we, we feel like we need a sign. We need proof. We have questions. We have doubts. The fact is, we are fearful to step in faith. And we need to hear the sign that God gave to Moses because I think he would intend to give us the same one. And he says, listen, Moses, go do what I say, and you will see that I'm faithful. Trust and obey, and then you will see that I'm faithful. So I want to ask you to do something this morning as we close up. I want you to take some time to consider what that looks like for you. What is the step of faith that God might be asking you to take. Remember, you can list all the inadequacies. You can have all the questions. 
But you know the answer to both of those. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is sufficient. He is enough. He is the answer. And so take some time this morning just to consider what is happening in your world. It may involve your marriage. It may involve your kids. It may involve some fear of something that you feel compelled towards, but you're paralyzed by the thought of moving towards it. And what would happen in your life if you came to the understanding that God has come alongside you and said, I will go with you? Would that make a difference? So just think about whatever it is going on in your life right now and ask yourself, would it make a difference if he said, I will go with you? And would that change your answer of what you might do next? Will you do that this morning? Just be honest with yourselves, and then I'll pray for us. Father, I don't know what is taking place in the hearts and lives of the people in this room this morning. I have no idea what conversation they may or may not have had with you in these last few moments. But you do. And because of the great love that I have for them, I want to pray that they would not be distracted by their own inadequacies, but they would trust in your sufficiency that they would not be paralyzed by the fear of the unknown, but they would receive great comfort in knowing that they are not alone, that you go with them, that in fact, you have come down to deliver them. And the answer to the questions that their heart longs for most is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. I pray earnestly that they would know that to be true, that they would take steps of faith, and that they would see that you are, in fact, faithful. Always have been. Always will be. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Now, before you leave, let me encourage you as you take time before the Lord to not hold that in privacy. I don't know about you, but I know what's true for me, and that is when there are things that are important to me that I really want to be faithful to, I need to tell someone so that they can come alongside of me, pray with me, pray for me, and encourage me. And so you need the very same thing. You and I are not different in that. So let me encourage you this week, as you've thought through and prayed through and considered what God's Word had to say this morning, that you will tell somebody about what He is speaking to your heart and see what he does with that. Okay? I hope you have a great holiday weekend. We're dismissed.